Then Jesus says, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Then there's the parable of the lost coin. A woman has ten silver coins and loses one. She sweeps her house and doesn't stop looking until the coin is found. Then she also calls her friends and neighbors and asks them to rejoice with her. Then Jesus says, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angel of God over one sinner who repents. And finally, there's the parable of the lost son. Jesus provides a few more details in this story. A father had two sons. The younger of the two asked for his, his share of the estate, and he left. After he had spent everything, he began to be in need. So he hired himself out to a citizen of that country, and he worked feeding the pigs. One day, he realized that even his father's servants were faring better than he was. The New International Version says he came to his senses. And he decided to go home and ask if he could become one of his father's servants. But you all know the ending to the story. When the father saw him coming, he ran to him and welcomed him home, not as a servant, but as his son. Then he also invited friends and neighbors to celebrate with him, and they feasted and celebrated the son's return. But there is more to this story. The older son hears the celebration, and he discovers that his father is actually throwing a party for the son who squandered his fortune. He is angry. Here he has worked for his father and has seemingly done everything right, and the party is not for him, but for his brother who has done everything wrong. The father says to him, to the older brother, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate you, lad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. In Timothy Keller's book, Prodigal God, he points out that the older brother who stayed is every bit as lost as the younger brother who left. The older brother uh, did not have the father, to, sorry, the older brother did not love the father anymore just because he was following the rules. In fact, from what we're told in the story, it seems that he believes he deserves everything his father has to give, rather than receiving it for what it is, a gift. In each of these stories, Jesus is communicating that he loves and values people. It doesn't matter that the shepherd has 99 other sheep, that the woman has nine other coins, or that the father still has one son with him. Each example shows the desire for the one that is lost. Each of us has value. And in just the first two illustrations, we may be tempted to think that there was something special about the sheep or the coin. Maybe it was the best sheep from the flock. Or maybe that one coin was worth more than the others. I think maybe that's why Jesus includes the third story. The son who left had done nearly everything wrong. But the son's value to the father is not in his behavior or accomplishments. He is valuable to the father because he is his son. And let's look at the older brother again. Do you ever identify with him? He is doing the things his father has asked him to do. And his father loves him. His father has told him, everything I have is yours. But instead of feeling loved, he looks at what his brother is getting and he feels cheated. 
Theodore Roosevelt is credited with the same comparison as the thief of joy. I'm embarrassed to share this example, but I think it illustrates really well how this works. Uh, when I was just a few months along with Ellie, Elia and I traveled to one of his cousin's weddings in North Carolina. And while we were there, one of his relatives, who hadn't been able to give us a wedding gift, uh, she slipped us $200 as a baby gift. And we were thrilled. Well, we were thrilled until we learned that that same relative, that same weekend, gave $2,000 to the bride who was getting married. And we immediately compared the gifts, and we felt cheated that we were not seen as worthy of more. Or have you ever found yourself here at church, looking around the room and comparing yourself to others? I'm not sure, but I think this is a struggle for women more than it is for men. I admire so many of you women in here, and sometimes I find myself slipping from admiring you to comparing myself to you and feeling a little cheated. Why can't I have beautiful, long, blonde hair like Lisa? Why can't I have Karen's grace and composure? I don't have time this morning to list all the things I admire slash wish I had. And it's wonderful to admire and appreciate each other, right? But we must be careful that in doing this, we don't fall into the trap of feeling cheated, that God didn't give us more. I may not have the things these other women have, or I may feel that I am lacking a great deal. But remember, comparison is the theme of joy. This is probably one of the reasons that God commanded us to not covet for our own happiness. I think it's also important to remember that others are looking at you and admiring you. The next time you're having a bad day, maybe you feel like the woman in Brad Paisley's song, consider that in the Bible it says that God is thinking more good things about us than there is sand on the shore. Psalm 139, 17 and 18 says, How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. God values us. He loves us, and he wants us to value each other. One of the best ways we can do this is through expressing our gratitude. The first year I was here as treasurer, I decided to write a quick thank you note on the giving statements that I hand out at the year end. You see, as treasurer, I am the only person here at the church who knows how much you give. And I thought, probably nobody's really going to read these or care about them, but this is one of the few chances we get to say thank you as a church. So I tried it. Um, the notes were not worth mentioning at all. They were short, my handwriting was poor, but I hoped that people understood the sentiment I was trying to convey, that we are grateful for your giving. And a couple weeks after sending the statements, I was stopped in the hall downstairs by a woman who told me she's been giving to the church for 60 years. Not this church specifically, she's been at different ones, but she's been giving to the church for 60 years. And she confided that the first few decades were sacrificial gifts. And then she told me that my note was the first thank you she had ever received. If she hadn't taken the time to share that with me and thank me for what I had done, I most likely would have discontinued the practice the following year. And I might have even felt unappreciated. Instead, because she took the time to stop me and personally thank me, I felt incredibly valued. The fact that someone noticed something, very little I did, and expressed gratitude meant the world to 
and encourage me to keep going, even when it seems like the children are getting nothing out of it. Another woman sent me a text to let me know she thought about me, I've been heavy on her heart, and she's praying for me. You see, in the media, women get this terrible reputation for being competitive and mean to each other. But I just want to point out that each of these examples I'm sharing today were from women. Women in this church who have expressed gratitude and encouragement with me. And I pray that you are experiencing the same thing here in this church family. And if you haven't done it yet, I'm asking you to reach out to someone today. Men, you are not excluded from this request. Send someone a handwritten to thank them for the volunteer work they're doing here. Send a quick email encouraging someone you know just lost, lost a loved one or may be feeling down. Send a text to let someone know you appreciate them or that you're praying for them. Invite someone to dinner for no other reason than you just want to be friends with them. Too often we're scared to put ourselves out there. We are afraid of rejection. And many of us thought when we got married we were through with rejection. But it still lurks around at every corner. What if I invite you to dinner and they don't want to come? Uh, what if they think it's weird that I sent them a text out of the blue? I encourage you to do it anyway. I will tell you personally that I have never wished someone didn't take the time to share kind words with me. You see, one of the greatest ways we communicate value is through our words. You can build others up or tear them down with nothing more than a few words. And as a side note, I want to say that I did not choose the topic of words because this is the Women's Series. In fact, the NPR broadcast, All Things Considered, recently shared a study by Science where researchers recorded the speech of 396 college students. They found that women speak a little more than 16,000 words a day, and men speak a little less than 16,000 words a day, and that the difference was not drastically different. Psychologist Matthias now says the three top talkers in the study, uttering up to 40,000 47,000 words a day, were all men. But so was the quietest subject, who spoke only 700 words per day on average. Mel says that he and his colleagues were surprised at the outcome. They had tentatively bought into the popular stereotype that women use three times more words a day than men, but they, in fact, do not. So now we've got that cleared up. We all use words. Some talk more and some less. But it is important for us to know that our words are powerful. We each have the incredible power to either encourage or discourage with our words. And we don't have to speak a lot in order to have an impact. Sometimes less is more. So let's play a little game this morning. I'm going to give you just three words or less and you tell me what company or organization it's for. The first one is an easy one. Just do it. Nike, awesome. Second one, breakfast of champions. Awesome, you guys are good. This one may be a little bit harder. We try harder. Avis, you got it. And then one of my favorites, where's the beef? Wendy's, good job. Think small. Just two words. Think small. Did I hear Volkswagen? Very good. And last but not least, live love. Very good, very good. You all get a few classes this morning. So it doesn't take 
take a lot of words to create a mental image or strong feeling, does it? These companies have certainly increased their value by using just these simple little words because they convey an entire picture of service, quality, flavor, and value. And it's not just what you say, it's how you say it. We've all heard that, right? And it's true. Our tone of voice conveys a lot. The other day, Aliyah and I were not actually arguing, but we were talking about something that had me completely fired up. I was going off on a rant in the kitchen, and Ellie was at the dining room table so she could hear us. And it wasn't long before she came in to join us, and she looked up at me and she said, Mommy, you shouldn't talk so ugly to Daddy. <laughs> and Aliyah loved this, of course. Not so much, because we had both been talking about the same thing, but my tone of voice was much worse. And even though I wasn't directing my words at Aliyah this time, my words were angry, and Ellie knew that they were, and that I shouldn't be talking like that. So Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I don't know about the rest of you, but I can usually begin the day doing this very well. I saw a cartoon the other day that perfectly sums up the way I tried to do this. It shows the mother getting her kids ready for school. And at the top it says, Mary Poppins' voice. Children, it's time to go. And then it shows, 15 minutes later, the kids are still in the house. And it says at the top, Batman voice. I said, let's go. <laughs> so the other day, Ellie and Anderson found my little box of treasures from childhood. And I keep this box under my bed because even now that I'm grown, I can't make myself store my treasures out in the garage where they probably belong. And they are kept in a small cedar box with my name engraved in the top next to a red painted part. And the kids like to explore everything. And when they were exploring, they found this box under my bed, and they felt like they had struck gold. It had been a while since I had opened it, so I sat down with them on the floor and started going through everything, all the things that I thought were really important as a child. We found my old Army Green Pathfinder sash, and it was covered with the honors I earned as a child, candle-making, semaphore signals, basket weaving, and so many more. I actually outgrew the stash before I outgrew Pathfinders, but I never got the patches transferred. So I have one very small half-filled stash and then a box full of honors, little patches. And this worked out great for Ellie because she put the, the stash on and she wore it around the house like a beauty queen all day. But there in the same treasure box, um, I also found at the bottom my baptismal certificate. And I was kind of surprised to find that in there. I assumed that my mom had kept it for safekeeping somewhere, but it was mixed in with all the other things that I wanted to keep safe when I was young. And on the back of the certificate, there's a list of baptismal vows. And it had been so long since I had taken these vows, I decided to read through them again. And the eighth one caught my attention. It says, I accept the doctrine of spiritual gifts and believe that the spirit of prophecy is one of the identifying marks of the remnant church. 
Inside the certificate is a summary of Seventh-day Adventist 28 fundamental beliefs. And it states that the church is to come behind in no gift. And the presence of the gift of prophecy is to be, again, one of the identifying marks of the visited church. We usually think of prophecy as a foretelling of the future. But the Bible has more to say about it than that. And in fact, the Bible says nothing about this being reserved for just one person within an organization. It talks about how we are different parts that make up one body. Our God is a God of perfection, so it doesn't make sense to me that we would have one head, 100,000 arms, and 200,000 mouths. This would form a very unhealthy body. And likewise, I believe if only one person within a large worldwide church possessed one of the spiritual gifts, that would be an equally unhealthy organization. So I believe the Bible is saying that the gift of prophecy is meant for many within the church. And here are just a few of the things the Bible says about this gift. First, in 1 Corinthians 1, 5-7, it says, For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Then Revelation 19.10. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. 1 Corinthians 14.3. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. Think about this for a minute. What if the spirit of prophecy were truly the identifying mark of the church? What if our members had a reputation of strengthening, encouraging, and comforting each other? I was listening to a podcast of Robert Morris speaking. He is a Texan who used to be a Southern Baptist, and now he's non-denominational. And I love his speaking, and I think it's partly because sometimes I just miss that Texas accent. But he was talking about prophecy and how God has used him to give a word to someone. And we don't talk about this a lot or use this phrase, give a word. Um, but he said that he had a dream where he woke up in the middle of the night, and he was thinking about one of his friends who's also a pastor. And he looked at the clock and saw that it was 4.33. So he said a prayer for his friend, and he fell back asleep. And when he awoke and went for a walk that day, this friend was still on his mind. So he spent the time on his walk in prayer for this friend. Robert remembered the date specifically because it was his grandson's birthday, and later that day, they were going to celebrate. So a few weeks later, he was thinking about his friend again, so he called him up. And they talked for a bit, and then Robert asked, so how have you been? I was really thinking about you a few weeks ago. You were heavy on my heart and I've been praying for you. His friend confided that he lost his father in the last weeks and it had been really tough on him. And Robert asked, did your father pass at 4.33 on August 5th? Unbelievably, his friend answered, yes. He said, well, I got the call at 4.35, but the time on my father's death certificate is 4.33. Robert said, that is the exact 
time, God woke me up. And his friend told him, I will carry through the rest of my life, knowing that when my father was passing, and I needed God so badly, that he was speaking to my friend and giving me the encouragement I needed. Every one of us can be a prophet. If we are listening to him, God will give us words for others that are for their strengthening and encouragement. When I was meeting with Pastor Japheth, Shelley, Charlene, and Monica in preparation for this women's series, Japheth asked me what I would want to say to Ellie if it were my last conversation with her. And this is an incredibly sobering thought. Nobody wants to think about their last conversation with someone they love. But as I thought about it, I thought, I want to say so much more than I love you. Of course I would say that. But I would tell her, more than anything, you are so valuable. I want this to be something that Ellie takes with her through her life. I want her to choose an amazing spouse because she is so valuable. I want her to follow her dreams because she is so valuable. I want her to take risks because she's too valuable not to. And the more I thought about this, I thought about what God tells us as his children. Over and over again, he tells us that we are valuable. He has loved us with an everlasting love. He has purchased us with his blood. We are valuable to him. In a conversation with one of my sisters the other day, we were talking about prayer. And she asked me, do you ever have a hard time praying for yourself? She said, you know, there are so many problems in the world. I think God has a lot of bigger things to deal with and doesn't care that I'm struggling to lose a little weight or want to pay down my debt. My problems seem really trivial when I look at everything going on in the world. And I thought about, I thought a lot about this because I agree with her that God has much bigger things to take care of. And there are others who need his help much more than I do. But then I go back to the stories about the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost sons. He cares about me. He wants a relationship with me. Right now, the things going in my life may be very trivial. But I believe he wants to hear about those things too. In Philippians 4, 6-7, when it says, Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell about everything. And thank him for all he has done. I think this verse is saying more than simply, Don't worry. I think it's also saying, talk to God about everything. Then in verse 7 it says, Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. God cares about the big things and the little things in our lives. When I was working at the North Texas Food Bank in Dallas, Texas, we had a volunteer named Sally, and she worked with our Food for Kids program. So every day, or every Friday, she was at one of our low-income schools passing out backpacks of food to children. Um, this was for kids who didn't know where they were going to have a meal. Sometimes they wouldn't have a meal between when they left school on Friday and they came back on Monday. And the backpacks were filled with non-perishable, kid-friendly snacks. Things like granola bars, cereal, shelf-stable milk, or food leather. And one day, as Sally was passing out the bags, a teacher came to her and she said, Sally, I'm so worried about this new boy who just transferred in. 
She said he has more souls, or more holes, than uh, souls in his shoes. She said, I'm just really worried about him. And Sally said, don't say another word. So she went shopping at Target. She took her son with her. And at the time, we knew the Iron Man had just come out. So when her son saw this pair of Iron Man shoes, he said, Mom, those are the ones. You've got to get those for that little boy. So Sally got the Iron Man shoes, but she thought, oh, if he needs shoes, he probably needs socks and underwear. And so she just got everything she thought a little boy could need right now, put it in a bag, and she just dropped it off with his teacher. Well, the next Friday, she was there passing out bags of food again, and she spotted this little pair of Iron Man shoes coming through the line. And she squatted down next to the little boy, and she gave him a high five. And she said, hey, cool shoes. And he just beamed back at her. And he said, no one's ever worn them before me. God cares about people. And has honored us with the task of communicating to others just how important they are. Through our words and our actions, may we tell others that they are loved by God and they are so valuable. Of the story of the lost sons, Timothy Keller writes, The choice before us seems to be either turn from God and pursue the desires of our hearts, like the younger brother, or repress our desire and do our moral duty, like the older brother. But the sacrificial, costly love of Jesus on the cross for us it attracts our hearts to him. We realize that the love, the greatness, the consolation, and the honor we have been seeking in other things is here. The beauty also eliminates our fear. If the Lord of the universe loves us enough to experience this for us, what are we afraid of? Truly, when we are confronted with the perfect love of Christ, when we are treated as valuable treasures by him and by his people, we become better. We can't help but try to live up to the standard of excellence that he is telling us we already are to him. This is my prayer for you today, for everyone, but especially for the women of this church, that you may know how valuable you are to God. He knows you better than anyone else, and he loves you. He is thinking more good thoughts about you than there is sand on the shore. You are valued. You are loved. You are perfect. Amen.